Andrew mentioned that it's good to have actually live or real people in the building this morning. I think there was live or real people in the building, like, for the last number of months. Like, what about me, Andrew? But uh, I know what he's saying. It is true. Uh, the last uh, three days, uh, Thursday morning early, I left with my son, and we went way back in the woods of Vancouver Island up to the Walbrand Valley and uh, found a spot on the top of a mountain by a creek and have camp, was camp, were camped there for the last three days or so. And uh, one of the things which is so beautiful about doing that is not only are you surrounded by nature, and this is old-growth forest, never been cut, so the trees are massive, um, but there's no technology, there's no cell service uh, anywhere near, and so our phones didn't work except for our uh, maps that we needed to have, uh, that we downloaded, but our phones didn't work, so there was no dinging and pinging and bonging and everything else that goes with all of that. And so you just have a lot of time to sit and think. And just watch and observe uh, nature, observe the sun come up and go down, observe the hummingbirds flying around the elk walking down the side of a mountain or whatever. And um, one of the things that I did as I had hours and hours on my own was just reflected on Second Peter. And uh, I didn't have my Bible with me, which um, don't chastise me or send me an email about, but I had some of it in my head. And I was just reflecting on Second uh, Peter and going over some of the things that uh, we've already studied and thought about in the context of it. And it never hurts to remind us of where we are in the book of a Bible and, and why that particular book was written. So I just want to take a few moments and do that uh, this morning as we begin to dive into this text again. I think one of the most amazing things is just to recall who Peter is writing to. He's writing to those who are, have something in common. And what we have in common is that we're saved by the righteousness of Christ, that he is our God and our Savior. And it's a wonderful thing that there's no tears in the Christian faith, that we're our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so uh, I thank the Lord that Peter begins by just encouraging us and reminding us and getting us all on the same page. But then he reminds us what God has done for us. And I don't think it's ever a bad practice for the people of God at any time to just sit down for a few moments and reflect on what God has done for you. Um, Peter here is very specific, and he's got a reason for being specific, but he talks about two things in particular that God has done. He has granted them all they need for life and godliness, and that's important because we need to live, and we need to live well, and we need to live rightly in the world that God has um, placed us, but godliness also matters, and so God has given us all that we need for that, which is amazing, and I don't know if we reflect on that enough as we walk through life. Uh, and he talks about that, and then he, he talks about how we have escaped this world and its corruption uh, through what Christ has done for us. And as a result of that, he's given us these precious promises which guide us through this life, but set our hope on a world to come. And it's amazing to just reflect on all that God has done for you. And that's what Peter is doing with these believers. But it's not so that at the end of the day, we can just sit back and let go and let God. I think sometimes people have that view of the Christian faith. Well, really, I can't do anything. God is sovereign after all. And God chose me. God elected me. So I just need to sit back and let God do what he needs to do. Well, that's never found in the Bible as the way we're supposed to react to what God has done for us. And so Peter tells us, he says, now in light of all that God has done for you, that he has brought you into his family, I want you to live this way. And we've been thinking of the seven qualities that uh, Peter describes for us. And they're not just random qualities, I hope you understand. All of these are traits of Christ. 
And so you can find each of those in Christ. You can go to an example in the Gospels of how Christ was, was, was um, managed by self-control, how Christ um, had brotherly love, uh, how Christ was patient or steadfast in trial. And so what Peter is actually saying is that in light of what God has done for you, because you now have this eternal nature that is part of who you are, become more like Christ. And in fact, it's not all that difficult to do because uh, Paul will say in another place, um, you, you, uh, it's no longer you who lives, but it's Christ who lives in you. And so really Peter is saying is, is just think on Christ, dwell on Christ, watch Christ, imitate Christ. And this is what he drives to these, drive towards these people. So he says, really, I want you to become more and more like Christ, to grow in godliness and in holiness, and he's he's done it through this lens that that um, he gives us a past, a present, and a future. He says, in the past, you were corrupt, but you have escaped that because of what Christ has done. He says, in the present now, we're to live like Christ, we're to take on Christ, we're to add these qualities to our life. And in the future, he says, as you walk this way, you will grant or you will gain a broad entrance into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, our, our world is not over when we die, or this world is not over when it burns up. There is an eternity to come. And the way we live now prepares us for that eternity to come. And so this pursuit of godliness is critical. Because as Peter is talking about, when Christ comes back, that new world will come into existence. God will create a new heaven and a new earth. And so the pursuit of godliness is directly correlated or connected to what Peter is going to be focusing on is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that's this challenge that Peter is bringing before us. He says, don't lose sight of the truth that Jesus is coming back. Don't let it fade from your thinking. Don't begin to doubt that it's ever going to happen. Don't think that it's just a myth or a fairy tale. He says, because there are things that are going to come and they're going to challenge your life on whether or not you think that's true. And that's why he says one of the greatest threats to godliness and to focusing on the second coming are false teachers. And the thing he says about these false teachers are they're, they're not just people sort of that are out in the world. As chapter 2 says, he says, they will come from among you. They will come from those who, who, who fit within the broad category of the gathering of the people of God. Those who claim the name of Christian faith. Those who claim to be followers of Christ, but they're actually not. And part of what he's saying is we need to learn how to discern the difference between false teachers and those who teach lies and those who teach the truth. And one of the things about false teaching is it often leads to a life that is anything but godly. And so that's what he'll begin to say as he talks about these false teachers. He says, well, they're individuals who deny the, uh, the master who bought them. They deny the authority of Christ. They, they don't listen to how Christ wants to constrain and direct their lives. They blaspheme the way of the truth. They say, well, the Bible doesn't really matter. The, the Bible's not really important. It's, it's good help and it's good information, but it's not all the information that you need. And in particular, he will say about this group that they are mocking the second coming. They're saying, no, it's not going to come. Oh, it's already happened. Oh, it's, it's just a, a myth that's been made by you. And as a result, then, they live a kind of life that is not constrained by the reality of the second coming. They have unrestrained passion, he says. In other words, they do whatever they feel like. 
I think we've heard that phrase, if it feels good, do it. That's kind of what false teachers will tell you. Oh, Christ isn't coming back. There's no judgment at the end of the day. So you can live what you want. You can do what you want. You can experiment with whatever you want. They reject the truth. They, they reject the word of God and how it guides and directs our life. He says they embrace polluting desires. They, they, they embrace the things that God says we shouldn't embrace. He says they have eyes full of adultery and they're always looking for ways of sin. One of the, the characteristics of false teachers now is just unrestrained sexual passion. You look at the world around us, the sexual license is everywhere. And it's even creeping into the church. And that's one of the things that false teachers encourage and promote. But it's absolutely contrary to the scripture. And it's out of character with what the second coming does to shape our behavior. And so the shtick of these false teachers towards the people around them that are putting their hope in the second coming and believe that godliness matters is something like this. Come on, you guys, lighten up. You don't really believe that stuff, do you? You don't really believe that you ought to control yourself. You don't really believe that you ought to wait to be married before you have sexual relations. You don't just need to have eyes for people of the opposite sex. Times are changing. Truth is changing. Doctrine is unhelpful. Let go and embrace your passions. That's what Peter is dealing with in the world in which he's writing. A group of people from within the church that are beginning to promote that way of thinking. And at the very heart of it is this sinful lifestyle, which is cultivated because they've got their eyes off of the second coming of Jesus Christ. At the end of his letter, Peter will write to them and he'll say, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care not to be carried away by the error of lawless people and lose your stability. There's that, that, that admonition to us, be careful. Take care. Use your head. Use your mind. Read the scriptures. Think it. Absorb it. Let your life be guided and directed by it. And so he, he, he then expounds then the nature of the second coming. He, he says, listen, you need to be careful of false teachers who rise up among you, who, who promote a lifestyle that is anything but guided and guarded by the second coming, and he says, now this is what I want you to know. It will happen. Christ is going to come back. And in chapter 3, we will look at the various ways in which that fosters godliness and helps us with holiness in our lives. Peter says, and this is what we need to embrace as God's people. He says, the Lord is coming again. The coming of the Lord is also called the day of the Lord or the day of God. It's a day of judgment. It's the day when this age in which we live will end. The Apostles' Creed um, writes this. He says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And then you skip down a little bit. And it says, he ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And we say, well, is that rooted in Scripture? Is Peter right, or are there false teachers right? Who do we believe on this? Well, Peter is going to tell us where we are to put our faith and where we are to put our trust and what we are to believe. And he's going to do it in two ways. He's going to point to the transfiguration. If you're not familiar with that as a Christian, it's the, it's the, it's the day when Jesus went up to a mountain 
and we're going to look at it a bit, with three of his disciples, and he was transformed, transfigured. All of a sudden, his flesh was sort of um, dulled or put down, and his deity and his glory and his power were exposed for the disciples to see this. So Peter is going to take us back to that historical event, and then he's going to take us to the Word of God and tell us, listen, the Word of God doesn't come from men. It's not something that we made up or men made up and thought, well, let's write these neat things down to guide people. He's going to tell us, no, the Word of God comes from God himself, and we'll look at that next week. But you think, if you're a lawyer, I'm not a lawyer, and I haven't had a lot to do with lawyers except when I buy a house, but I think from watching enough TV or knowing, talking to lawyers, there's basically two things that they do when they go into court. They want to get eyewitnesses. If you can get eyewitnesses and they corroborate, even though they might look at the story from a different point of view, but eyewitnesses help make their case. But also documents make their case. And if you can prove the truth or the veracity of a document, that helps as you make your case. And so that's what Peter is amassing. He's amassing eyewitnesses, and he's amassing documentary evidence to prove the second coming of Jesus Christ. So now you might ask yourself, what's the transfiguration got to do with the second coming of Christ? I don't know if you ever thought that. What's the transfiguration got to do with the second coming of Jesus Christ? Well, Peter understood that what he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration that day was a forward-looking vision of the glory of Christ to be revealed on the promised day of God. Or put another way, the transfiguration was a preview of Christ when he comes in all his power and his glory. He's going to root our confidence in the return of Christ in a historical event which the preview of the coming of Christ was made known to Peter. So back up a little bit now. In verse 16, we come to the text. Is For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of Christ. Just a couple of things before we dive in it. Notice the shift from I to we. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Who's he talking about all of a sudden? He's talking about Peter, James, and John specifically because they were with him on the mountain. But it's also a, a, a reminder of apostolic witness. And by that we mean there were a group of apostles, men who were with Jesus from the time of his baptism to the time of his ascension. And why apostolic witness is so important is they were with him. They walked with him. They saw him. They talked with him. They witnessed his miracles. All that Jesus did in time and history, they were witnesses of. And so this is eyewitness testimony. This roots Christianity in history. It roots it in time and space, and that matters. Peter will say at one of the great days of preaching, uh, in early uh, days of the early church, when uh, dozens of hundreds of people, thousands of people were there, Peter, he declares to them, he says, God raised Jesus up. And then he says, and we were witnesses of that. It wasn't just a figment of our imagination. It wasn't just a story that was passed down to us. We saw the risen Jesus. 
And Paul will make a point of that in 1 Corinthians 15, where he'll talk about how the risen Jesus appeared. He says, he appeared to me. Um, the least of all, he appeared to 500 at one time. He appeared to the 12. The actual physical appearance of the resurrected Jesus was witnessed by hundreds of people. And Luke, when Luke begins his gospel in Luke chapter 1, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word to delivered, uh, delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. You see what Luke is saying? He's saying, I, I want you to know these aren't stories that we've made up. I've investigated this. I've talked to the people who saw these things. I've been to the places where Jesus was. He says, these are real historical events of real historical people that happened in real time and space. And so Peter is now saying, when we are not following cleverly devised myths, he's saying there was apostolic witness to the reality of what Jesus experienced on that mountain. This, this, see what, coming back to this now, what he's implying here is that the false teachers are saying, that's just a bunch of hogwash, that stuff. Come on, you people. Jesus isn't coming back again. It's been thousands of years. It's just a, a myth that they've made up to control you. It's just a, a story that teaches this wonderful truth that rather than letting you live the life that you want to live, it's constraining you and it's restraining you and they're controlling you by this myth that they've made up. One of the things we learn about the scripture is that this word myth or mythos used five or six times in the New Testament is never used in a positive light. It's always used negatively. I think one of the most... Um, uh, helpful um, uses of this is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 to 4, where there, Paul writing to Timothy uh, says to them, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In other words, they want people who tell them stories and, and, and give them a certain way of life that doesn't constrain them, but really allows them to follow after their sinful passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You understand what, what, what Paul is saying there when he's writing to Tim? He says, you've got truth and you've got myth. And so what Peter is saying is we are following truth. This isn't some myth that we've made up to control the people. This is truth. And so the second coming of Jesus is not a story. It's not a myth. It's not made up. It was a prefigured historical event. And again, what I want us to sort of understand as I'm working through this is, is that history matters. That the Christian faith is a historical faith. The Christian faith is rooted in things that actually happened. That, that Noah was a real person. Adam and Eve were real people. 
Jonah was a real person swallowed by a real whale. It wasn't a myth that was made up, a story about some mythical man named Jonah and some mythical whale that, that came along and swallowed him simply to teach a truth that God is really powerful and he can save you in a, in when you're in big trouble. No, that, Jonah was a real man who existed in time and space and went to a real hist, a city called Nineveh. Esther was a real woman, a real queen of a real kingdom. Jesus was a real man who was born by, uh, to uh, Joseph and Mary, and he lived on this earth, and he breathed this air that we breathed, and he had flesh and blood, and people saw him, and they touched him, and they talked with him, and they ate with him, and they listened to him. He died, and he rose again. This is history. The Christian faith is rooted in verifiable facts, a number of years ago, J. Gresham Machem, in an essay of the history of Christianity, wrote, If that be so, if the Christian religion is founded upon historical facts, then there is something in the Christian message which can never possibly change. There is one good thing about facts. They stay put. That's why it's so important that we understand when we think for ourselves about a faith and we're teaching it to our children or our grandchildren or our neighbors that this is not made up stuff. This is verifiable truth. And truth stays put. So Peter wants to root the second coming in history, in verifiable history. So let's... There's, there, the, the transfiguration is in three places in the scripture. Uh, it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I just want to um, read from one of those. Um, I got them all three down. I can't remember which one I'm going to quote from. I'll figure it out. Well, you know it's from one of those three. Um, you know what? Probably shouldn't do that. Let's find the right one. It's either Matthew 17. Okay, it's Matthew 17. Matthew 17, starting at verse 1. This is the gospel account of the transfiguration. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother. They were their witnesses. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking to them when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from that cloud said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but only Jesus. So you go to the account in 2 Peter chapter 2, and Peter says, What did we see? We saw the majesty of Christ. We saw the greatness of Christ. We saw the glory of Christ. We saw the 
power of Christ, when his face shone, the, the, the fullness of his deity and his power and his might were evident in his face and his clothes just lit up because of his holiness and his puriness, purity. And this was God that we saw there. This was God, our Savior, that we saw. This was our King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. As John says in John chapter 14, we beheld his glory. This is more than a man that they saw on the mountain. This is what Paul saw when he was on the Damascus road and he was slain as this bright light came from heaven. He saw the majestic Christ. And what did they hear? It's fascinating, you know, I, I, it's fascinating what he says, from whom he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born from heaven by the majestic glory. Have you ever heard God called that before? The majestic glory. He rides above the heavens in his majesty. It's Peter's way of almost not wanting to pronounce the name of God. But he describes him as the majestic glory. And notice the things that God says. He, he makes this revelation. This is my son. This is a declaration of who Christ is. This isn't just Jesus the man. This is the son of God. This is God's son. And God makes that declaration. It's this revelation that God makes. He reveals to them, this is my son. It's the same words he used at the baptism. And then his affirmation of the son, in whom I am well pleased. And then his declaration, listen to him. God gives him honor. God gives him glory on that mountain as he speaks about his son. And notice, just as a side, where does the voice come from? I, I, I try and talk as often as I can, loved ones, about the importance of a worldview. The importance of understanding that the physical world in which we live is not all that there is. That all around us, everywhere around us, is another reality. And that in that reality is God. God reigning over this world, and I, I don't quite understand it. I just know that it's there. And that on that mountain, they had the physical reality of Jesus on the mountain. And then they had that spiritual reality of the voice speaking from heaven. And then they saw Moses and Elijah. Loved ones, there is so much more going on in this world than meets the eye. Do you know what precedes the account of the transfiguration, though? I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever connected the dots on this. But it's helpful to look at what precedes it. Matthew chapter 8, verse 38 to 9, 1 helps us kind of understand this because I think this then gives us some insight into why Peter was using the transfiguration here. Mark chapter 8, verse 38. Jesus is speaking and he says, Listen, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. Notice, when he comes in his glory, the glory of his Father and his holy angels. He's talking about his coming back to earth. He's talking about when he's going to come in glory. And then he says to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God um, after it has come with power. In other words, the, the transfiguration is an illustration of this. Jesus is just talking about his 
coming in power and glory. And then he's saying, listen, there's some of you that are going to get a preview of that before you die. And then what happens about six days later is they go up to a mountain and they get a preview of the coming of Christ in his power and his glory. That's why Peter says this is not a myth. This is not a cleverly devised tale by us. This actually happened in time and space. This is verifiable. There are witnesses to it. And so Peter is saying that the power and the coming of Jesus at the end of the age is not a cleverly devised myth. He says, we saw Christ in his power and his glory. And we, we had this audible witness of him in his power and his glory. We saw and heard something of the reality of that great day, and we were terrified. I think it was Alistair Begg who put these things together for me. He says, on that Mount of Transfiguration, we have a picture of the dead being raised. Moses and Elijah were there. We have a picture of the living being present. There was Peter, James, and John. We have the picture of Christ in all his glory and his power. And we have God, the Father, present. This is a picture all together on that mountain, that little mountain of that great day. When the dead in Christ will be raised, when we are alive, we'll meet Jesus, and we will be forever with the Lord. And on that day, then the day of God will begin. And this was prefigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, this is not some cleverly devised myth. This is truth. I was reading a portion of a letter, or I'll read a portion of a letter to you from John Newton. And he had had the privilege of, during a particularly difficult time in world history when people were dying all over the place, of spending time with many of the people who were dying. And he says, for about six weeks past, I have had the occasion to spend several hours of almost every day with the sick and the dying. And he talks about his um, interactions with the sick and the dying, but he comes to one particular young lady. He says, permit me, my Lord, he's writing to a nobleman, permit me, my Lord, to relate upon this occasion some of the things which exceedingly struck me in the conversation I had with a young woman whom I visited in her last illness about two years ago. She was a sober, prudent person of plain sense and could read the Bible, but had read little beside. Her knowledge of the world was nearly confined to the parish, for I suppose she was seldom, if ever, more than 12 miles from her home in her whole life. She had known the gospel about seven years before the Lord visited her with this lingering consumption, which at length removed her to a better world. He says, after days, a few days before her death, I had been praying by her bedside, and in my prayer, I thank the Lord that he gave her now to see that she had not followed cleverly devised fables. I hope you're beginning to make the connection here. When I had finished, she repeated that word. No, she said, not cleverly or cunningly devised fables. These are realities indeed. I feel their truth. 
I feel their comfort. Oh, tell my friends, tell my acquaintances, tell inquiry souls, tell poor sinners, tell all the daughters of Jerusalem what Jesus has done for my soul. Tell them that now in the time of need, I find him my beloved and my friend, and as such I commend him to them. She then fixed her eyes steadfastly upon me and proceeded as well as I can reflect as follows. Sir, you are highly favored in being called to preach the gospel. I've often heard you with pleasure, but give me leave to tell you that I now see all you have said or can say is comparatively but little, nor till you come into my situation and have death and eternity full in your view will it be possible for you to conceive the vast weight and importance of these truths that you declare. These are not cleverly devised tales, but these are truths that sustain us in our darkest, most difficult times. And we ought never to take those truths lightly. So what's the point? It's taken a long time to get here this morning. What's the point? Well, godliness matters. That's, that's where we left off, and that's where we're coming back to, and that's what Peter is about. Godliness matters. Don't leave off that truth. Don't discard apostolic witness. Embrace godliness. You see, there may be some watching or listening even here today who have left off believing that Jesus Christ is coming again. And even so, there may, may be some who say to themselves, I don't believe that stuff. That's a bunch of hogwash. Tui, that's stuff that Christians have just made up to control us, just like the false teachers back in Peter's days said. Paul wrote this. He said, The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. See what Paul is saying? God has fixed a day. As we said last week, concerning that day or that hour, nobody knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. But God has fixed a day. And on that day, I, I, I like to some kind of picture it. God and Jesus are sitting on the throne in heaven, thrones in heaven, and God just kind of leans over, taps his son on the shoulder, and says, go get him. I don't know, it's maybe not the right way to speak of it. It's way more powerful and majestic and awe-inspiring than that. But God's going to say, today's the day, son. Today's the day when you go back to earth in all your power and glory and might. And all the promises that we've made, all the promises that, that we've given to guide God's people are going to be yes and amen. What kind of day? Well, for many, it's going to be a day of incredible rejoicing. It'll be like a day on that mountain. The dead will be together with the living, together with Christ, together with the Father. We will be present with him. But also that day marks the end of this age when judgment is ushered in. And the world will be judged. You see, the second coming is not just a doctrine for the living. It's also a doctrine for the dead. Because the Bible says that it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. As Paul says in Thessalonians, the dead in Christ will be raised first. Daniel talks about the resurrection of the just and the wicked. So the second coming is going to impact every one of us. 
whether we are living or whether we are dead, because at that day we will all be raised and we will face the day of judgment. And so what are you to do? Well, the Bible says repent. It's a wonderful thing. God doesn't just say there's a day coming and you're going to be in trouble. Ha <laughs> ha. He says, no, I provided you with a Savior. His righteousness will protect you from my wrath. Put your trust in him. And that day will be a day of rejoicing and celebration for you. So trust Jesus today. Believe the truth of God's word. Remember, facts stay the same. History does not change. The coming of the Lord has been prefigured in time and space. It's only a matter of time before Jesus comes again. Father, we come before you today, and we're thankful for your word for the way that it guides us, for the way that it instructs us. I'm thankful to doctrine, Father, too, but it's not just stuff that is great for us to debate in classrooms and to debate one another in the church hallways and say, well, I believe Jesus is coming now, and I believe Jesus is coming then, and then we just go home and live our lives how we want. No, doctrine is to shape us. It's to affect our behavior. It's to change our thinking. It's to reorientate us to things that are true. So I pray that will be true of this doctrine, this truth of the second coming of Christ. That we won't just pride ourselves in knowing something that other people don't know or in being able to articulate our view better than somebody else, but that we will say, God, in light of your coming, how ought I to live in godliness and holiness? I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.